are founded on this concept of autonomy and teacher voice and teacher empowerment. And so they could be considered teacher-powered schools um, in which teachers play a larger role in shaping what is happening at the school site and principals create distributed leadership structures. And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, guys, gals, and non-binary pals to another episode of All the Above, the show that gives you an unstandardized take on education. I'm Jeffrey Garrett, one of your co-hosts, and I've been a middle and high school principal and a high school social studies teacher. And as always, I'm joined by... What up, family? It's Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. I'm a high school history teacher here in the Los Angeles area. This is year 18 in the classroom for me. And this here, of course, is all the above your home for news and analysis of all matters pertaining to our world of education. We want to extend a warm hug and shout out to everybody who is joining us for the very first time. We hope you enjoy what we discuss here at All the Above, where we have these important conversations about issues in education that are too often just left to the margins or not looked at in a, with a critical lens. And we like to do it with a little bit of joy and a whole bunch of super dope guests. So please, if you enjoy what you're hearing or what you're watching, if you are watching us on YouTube or watching us on the Spotify app, please hit that thumbs up or that five stars or whatever might be there so that you could show other folks that this is a show that maybe they should be checking out. Jeff, man, you know, we record these video versions, you know, little little behind the scenes stuff right here for the audience. We record these video versions about a week or two ahead of when they publish because it takes time to edit these and all that. So this one here that we're recording now, it's going to be coming out on what turns out to be the two-year anniversary of kind of when the whole world fell apart, Jeff. I believe this one posts mm. March 12th. And I think March 13th was the last day of in-person school before the pandemic just raged through the country after having raged through the world for quite some time already, Jeff. So I don't really know how we should mark this moment. It's kind of kind of like, uh, it's been it's been a very long two years, but I guess we're in a maybe better place, at least in that sense of pandemic. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, I'm not, I'm not sure what to say about that either, man. Well, it is, yeah, man. uh, I was having the conversation the other day where I was like, you know, it feels strangely like the last two years has been 20 years and the last two years has been 10 minutes. Yeah. Right? Uh, and so, uh, yeah, it's crazy to think back how much has happened with the show even really over, over the last two years. I, I think there's probably a lot of folks who watch and listen who, have come on board since the pandemic, but uh, we used to film in person in the studio. In an actual a, TV a, studio. Yeah, in an actual TV studio, which was great. We had a crew of students, um, and I gotta give a special shout out. I sent you a picture the other day, Manuel. Special shout out to, to Carlos, who was one of our original crew, who a coworker of mine saw at Target this week <laughs> and wearing one of our shirts, wearing a Teach the Truth shirt. And she was like, oh, hey, I know that shirt or whatever. And they connected and found out that, you know, sort of made the connection that he was on the show and she works with me. And so um, anyways, it was a beautiful moment. But that was two years ago. And it feels like it was yesterday and feels like it was a lifetime ago um, at the same time. And since then, so much has happened on the show, right? We've moved yeah. to a virtual studio setup, uh, which has some great benefits. Like we can bring in amazing guests from anywhere on planet Earth, right, to, to join the show. So 
the show might be the one thing that's gotten substantially better during, <laughs> during the pandemic, Manuel. Yeah, you, you might be right. You might be right. And the reason I mentioned that we're recording this ahead of the actual anniversary is because I'm wondering, like this coming week, I'm wondering if there's going to be much you know, discussion or how much discussion or how much awareness there's going to be among teacher circles about like, hey, we're this we're we're approaching the two year mark like it's. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm curious. But in any case, yeah, man, two years, this, this show has grown so much and we want to just again send just so much love and appreciation to our fans, our audience members, our, our followers, our AOTA family, really our AOTA family for helping us transition to this home studio setup. We couldn't have done it without the uh, generous support of, of, of viewers and listeners like you. So thank you so much. And with all that said, we have a super dope episode today, Jeff. We are back with a, a super dope guest and all that. So Jeff, can you break down what is on the agenda today? Well, Manuel, as usual, we got a good one for everybody today, and we have a guest coming on who I'm super excited to have in our space because um, it's not often, actually, Manuel, that we really get to talk to someone not only about the issues of how can we uh, create alternative approaches to school, but someone who has actually walked that walk um, in the form of being a pilot school principal um, here in Los Angeles. And now our guest today, who is none other than Dr. Cynthia Gonzalez, um, actually works for the Los Angeles Unified School District, overseeing supports for the district's, uh, you know, somewhere around 40 or so pilot schools. Um, so we're going to get into this conversation, man. Well, I think it's going to be really fascinating for people to learn a bit about what are pilot schools, what makes them different than traditional public schools, what makes them not charter schools, but what also makes them potentially uh, a real option for innovative redesign of school um, within districts that potentially we could do more of. So um, it's going to be a fascinating conversation, and I think folks definitely don't want to miss it. Yeah, I can't wait for that. I definitely don't know much about pilot schools, and I'm definitely in that arena of like, well, it's a public school, but it's not a charter school. It's part of a district, but it's not quite the same as the other traditional district schools. So I'm definitely looking forward to hearing some more about this and the innovation that takes place at uh, the pilot schools that Dr. Gonzalez works at. So, but at first folks, we have our do now. Let's take a look at some news and headlines in the world of education. That's coming up next. Stay tuned. All right, folks, now it's time for today's do now. Let's take a look at some news and headlines in the world of education. Jeff, how are we gonna do the do now today? Well, man, well, today's one of those times where uh, we gotta pause, take stock, give some feedback on how things are going. Uh, in, in the stone age, when you and I were kids, this would be that day when you gotta try to race home to get the mail before you know your parents <laughs> got the mail. Uh, we're gonna dish out a report card today, Manuel. Okay, okay. Well, for the record, I never had to race home for the report card because I always had good grades, Jeff. I always had good grades. Well, I never had to try to be deceitful <laughs> and hide the mail from my parents. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I, you know, I never doubted you, Manuel. I <laughs> always had good grades, but my parents were uh, ruthless dictators when I was <laughs> very young. And any, anything less than a B was, uh, you know, it's pretty much a life sentence. Um, so, you know, if I had like a B minus coming, that was going to be a problem. Okay, ah, so, gotcha. 
you know, I may or may not once or twice have attempted to intervene successfully or unsuccessfully. The, the thought <laughs> crossed the mind. I'll just leave it at that. All right. That's fair. That's fair. Well, your folks will be pleased with this first grade for today's Do Now because the first grade that we have for today is an A. Mm. In this case. I mean, who's, who's not uh, happy about an A, Manuel? Um, folks who want an A plus, we've all had that student. Okay. How come okay. I don't have an A plus? I did this, I did that. What can I do? What can I do yes. to get up there? Do you offer any extra yes. credit? There's all that. Uh, um, but no, this I, A here, Jeff, is for apartments. Apartments. Ah. Okay. Which is uh, interesting. I live in an apartment. Um, I am familiar with the concept. Yes. Yeah, you're familiar. And, you know, this is a show about education. This is not like a real estate podcast or anything like that. I'm assuming there's a such thing as a real estate podcast. So why are we talking about apartments? Well, Jeff, it's because of a new story that we got out of EdSource by way of John Fensterwald. So shout out to John and the good folks at EdSource for doing some great education reporting. And in this story, he reports about 122 teachers and other employees in the Jefferson Union High School District. That's in Northern California, Daly City. And um, those teachers are awaiting the results of a lottery a drawing, actually, that will determine whether they get to move into a new housing project that their district is building, which offers below market rents. These are educators who are trying to get a spot in these brand new apartments that are being developed by their district. Now, the rents that the tenants will pay at this new um, housing project will be about 60% that of the market rates in the area. Now, for that area, 60% of uh, the going market rate for these apartments means that a one-bedroom apartment will be going for about $1,500 a month. A two-bedroom apartment will be going for about $1,900 a month. And a three-bedroom apartment will be going for about $2,400 a month. Now, when this apartment complex opens in mid-May, Jefferson Union will join an exclusive list Los Angeles Unified and Santa Clara Unified School Districts are the only other K-12 districts in California with subsidized housing for staff. 20 years ago, Santa Clara Unified School District pioneered the concept with its 70-unit Casa del Maestro, which has been a success judging by data on teacher retention and the ongoing wait lists for a unit there. Five other California districts have earmarked employee housing in school bonds that voters passed across the last three years. And according to a recent report commissioned by the California School Boards Association, 46 districts across California are in various states of moving forward with a staff housing project. David Garcia, who's co-author of that report and also policy director for the Turner Center for Housing Innovation at the University of California, Berkeley, said, quote, districts own a lot of land and it takes only a small percentage to do something. Employee housing isn't a panacea, but it has potential. Now, nationally, 35% of teachers are considered rent burdened, as, which is defined as paying more than 30% of their income as rent. And the problem is most pronounced in California, especially among black and Latino teachers. So, Jeff, we have, I don't know if you learned, I don't know if you are familiar with this, but um, a bit of a housing crisis going on, especially in California. Uh, <laughs> rents, mortgages, all that stuff. Out of control, Jeff, out of control. And here's a story about one district up in the Bay Area that's trying to do something to uh, help 
their educators afford to live within their actual school district. So Jeff, what are your thoughts about, about these ideas here? Oh, man, well, I have so many thoughts, okay? Uh, all of them, some various combination of moral outrage and uh, disgust with American capitalism. I just want to preface the story before I unload upon you and our listeners here and we viewers go, here. Communists. Okay? Yes, I'm bringing it. Bring it from the left, people. Okay, here we go. So first, first and foremost, Manuel, let's start with the fact that you just said that a $2,400 a month three-bedroom apartment, uh, apartment, which is, you know, the size one might need if one has, say, a family, like right. the vast majority of people in the United States have at some point in their life, okay, $2,400 a month. Now, that is a substantially below market uh, rent. 60%, that they are, yep. Yeah, okay, that they're trying to charge. Now, let's do some math here, folks. If you pay $2,400 a month in rent, how much are you paying a year that is simply cash out of your pocket into the pocket of big wealthy developers and major banks, okay? I'll save you the arithmetic, but 2,400 times 12 is right around $30,000 a year, okay? Now, they also mentioned in this, in this article that there are many of those teachers whose salary hovers somewhere in the 50s, thousands range, okay? So let's be generous and say you make $59,999 in that range, okay? You don't have $30,000 to pay in rent for a three-bedroom apartment in, you know, the Bay Area. Okay, so this is just, and I'm not, you know, I always, Manuel, want to say, when people are trying to do good with policy, uh, and not trying to do good as in like, well, let's just stop harming a little bit, but when people are like actually trying to create something good, I generally have a rule of like, let's not just crap all over their ideas. Let's not spend our time and energy on that. Let's spend our time and energy on other things. So, you know, I want to say the folks who are like at least trying something out there, okay, appreciate the effort. But this <laughs> is how crazy things have gotten, Manuel, that we have teachers who are a core frontline essential worker workforce in every community in the United States, Manuel, because we all have children in our communities and we presumably in a democracy want all of those children to get a free, equitable, high quality public education. Yet we can't have teachers afford to live in whole regions of this ridiculously overpriced uh, billionaire playground of a state that we have here in California, uh, Manuel. But this same thing is true in almost every state in the union, just to different degrees, right? Um, and so this is illustrating, I think, Manuel, this is sort of a canary in the mine shaft kind of policy that shows that if what we are creating in our world is cities where teachers simply cannot afford to live without some super subsidized discounted housing that frankly is still barely, if at all, affordable to many teachers, okay? Uh, it is screaming to us, we have a problem. Now, why do I say this? And this is a show about education, Manuel. So how, let me bring it back full, full circle here. <laughs> Not only does this reflect what's happening with the teachers, but what about the students and the families that we serve? Okay, what does this mean about kids and their ability to stay in close location to their extended family, their grandparents, their aunts and uncles, their community, right? 
if this is if this squeeze is happening on teachers who are certainly making above the federal poverty limit, what's happening to the 30, 40, 50, 60, 80, 90 percent of kids in many of our schools who are, quote unquote, you know, free and reduced price lunch, living at below or just near and scandalously above the federal poverty line in this country. Right. Um, so we're creating communities that are economically crushing for kids and families. And now it's gotten to the point that that crush is crushing the teachers as well. This is bad for education on every front, Manuel. It makes me think um, there's so often in our discussions where I'm just like, we have to expand the conversation. It's not, it is of course about teaching and learning in the classroom. And it is also perhaps equally, if not more so as much about everything that's happening around schools that either enables the success of students and teachers or cripples the success of students and teachers. And this is just illustrating one of those factors right here. So glad they're doing it, but like, come on, man, this is not what we would call a policy solution. This is a pretty condo looking Band-Aid. I, I like that. I like that. Um, that's a great way to put it. And I will remind you, Jeff, that this is not, I mean, it's obviously not a solution. In this case, these are 22 teachers waiting for the results of a lottery to see if they even yeah. get one of these spots. <laughs> so like, yeah. this is far from like actually addressing the, the need in the district. And I'm sure the district is well aware of that. They're just doing what they can, I suppose, because this district, like a lot of districts, is struggling with the fact that a lot of their staff like simply cannot afford to live in their district and are going other places, other districts, other areas, other regions, other towns, other cities, because they just can't afford to stay there. So if you are the district and you are trying to make sure you have a robust teaching force. Like you got to do something to try to help folks be able to like stay there. Like I suppose. So I'm not mad at them. Just like, you know, you, you've just expressed, I'm not mad at them for trying. I know my district has considered something similar. I don't know where they are at in the process, but I know that they sent us a survey earlier this school year about whether or not we'd be interested. What would we be interested in, in terms of um, housing support and this and that. And a lot of teachers were upset about that survey because it came out during the time that we were also negotiating our new contracts. And some teachers were like, you know, the nerve of them to ask us what kind of like subsidized housing we will like when in reality, we just need to be paid more so that we have the money to actually live in our town or live in our city or whatever. I personally wasn't upset with at the survey because I'm like, look, they're, they're exploring options. They're trying something because it is quite ridiculous that the school that I teach at, one house just went uh, up for sale across the street and sold recently, I mean, one house sold recently across the street for 1.1 million. Two other homes just put up their for sale signs and they'll be going around the million dollar range. And this is not an area that has like mansions or anything like that. This has long been considered the quote unquote hood. And these homes are reflective of that. Yet the price that they are going for is outrageous. I, as a veteran teacher, as somebody who's like all the way over on the salary schedule and all that, can't even think about buying a place like right here next to the school that I teach at, which is overwhelmingly serving low income students. Like I can't even think about it because the, the dynamics of the housing market right now are just so ridiculous, so ridiculous. And you asked if this is happening, if this is the impact on teachers, then what is the impact on our students and their families? Well, I could tell you one of the impacts on our students and their families are at 
are that they are leaving and they're going elsewhere, further and further away from what was considered like city centers. And pretty much every week I'm signing off on some um, paperwork for another student whose family is moving way out to, for our context, out to the high desert, inland empire, like way mm -hmm. out in the, the dusty areas of Southern California where housing is less atrociously priced and valued. So it's, um, it's incredibly problematic. And for districts, especially districts that are in traditional like quote unquote urban areas that are seeing gentrification and seeing the impacts of the housing market right now. Yeah, this is definitely a issue to be very, very, very concerned about. I remember when I first entered the teaching profession, that was there in the housing boom where folks are getting houses left and right and getting approved for loans left and right. And of course we know the great crash that happened in 2008 and 2009. But I remember there were all these different programs for first time home buyers who were teachers. There are programs to help you buy your first home, this and that. And I don't really see any of that anymore, at least around here. I mean, I guess I'm not looking because I'm fortunate enough to have a home and have stable housing, but I don't really hear much about what supports are there for teachers to get their first homes so that they can start, you know, building a family or whatever they want to do, whatever they aspire to do, and to do that on their teacher salary. Like, it's just, um, it's it's really a mess. It's really unfortunate. I think it was our second or third episode of the show ever, like way, way back then in the early <laughs> days. We did have a similar do now story about a housing um plan in, I think it was Newark, New Jersey. They were building a, a new development and it was gonna be um, reserved specifically for teachers and educators in their uh, school district. I meant to look into that before the show to see how that turned out, to see you know whether or not that's you know fulfilling all the promise that it was sold as at the time in terms of giving teachers an affordable place to live in New Jersey and be able to teach and have you know a gym and coffee shops and all this stuff that was advertised. I didn't look into that. If anybody's listening who knows of plans or, or similar actions across the nation where districts have gotten in on the real estate game to help teachers and educators afford a place to live, like definitely hit us up. Let us know how's it working in your context or to your to your knowledge because we might need more of it because these housing prices do not look like they are going down anytime soon. Yeah. Yeah, I do remember that conversation, Manuel. And I believe in that conversation, I said something about it just making me uncomfortable because it feels like a 19th century British coal town where yeah, like, yeah. you know, you, <laughs> you're some kind of quasi indentured servant to the corporation. And, you know, I think maybe my concern is mildly less on that front that like this represents, you know, you like paying rent to the district and Working for oh, the yeah, district. Oh, yeah, because that one, the school was actually going to be attached to it, right? Yeah, yeah. That's right. I think That's so. Right. I think so. And so, you know, I like there is, this is maybe better or something, but I'm right. like, look, man, why isn't the rent like $1,000 a month for that three-bedroom place, right? And I don't want to hear the crap about whatever entities, banks, developers, investors, whatever, who cares about them? Their profits mean nothing in this equation. Like if what we're trying to do is have cities that are vibrant communities, if what we're trying to do is have places where educators can afford to live in relatively close proximity to the communities and schools that they serve, why are we elevating the profit part of this equation? We're the richest country in the world, man. We have billionaires. This article is talking about literally the, the wealthiest pocket of the United States up there in Silicon Valley, man. Like they got billionaires left and right. Tax these fools and build actual affordable housing that educators can live in and don't make them quasi indentured servants with still exorbitant rents 
paying their, their employer back essentially like this do real policy on this front man and not I, i'm 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 frustrated by the band-aid nature of things here yeah, you don't sound happy about this A, Jeff. This was an A. You're supposed to be happy about the A's, Jeff. You said, who wouldn't like an A? And here you are, uh, an A for apartments, and you sound upset. Wow, Jeff. I am, I am wow. mildly disgruntled uh, today, Manuel. My, my <laughs> sister used to have a button on her purse that said, if you're not outraged, you're not paying attention. And I feel like that is kind of the slogan of my life <laughs> at this point. Um, Okay, hey. so uh, should we jump to our next story? Manuel? Yeah, let's let's since you didn't like that, a hey, Jeff, let's get to a different grade. What else we got on today's report card? All right, well here's what we got, man. Well, it is uh, this is actually a segment called report card, and report cards don't just have one grade on them. So uh, you know, I brought speaking of your A, I brought my A game today, and I actually have three grades that we're gonna give in conjunction with this next story, Manuel. So the first one is a D. Not good. Second one is another D. Not good. Third one is an I. Sounds like somebody who perhaps wasn't able to log in during the pandemic and has uh, <laughs> grades that have been suffering because of that. And we should do all we, that we can to go back and help them so that their GPA and their transcripts aren't trashed because of this pandemic that we've experienced, Jeff. Yeah, it does have that kind of, uh, you know, May, June 2020 vibe to it, uh, right? Yes. Um, but I will say, for those of you who are paying attention, gold star for you, because these grades spell out DDI, which many educators might know uh, colloquially as data-driven instruction. We have a fascinating story about the relative merits uh, and the case for or against um, our traditional DDI data-driven instruction practices, Manuel. So here we go. We're going to get into it. Uh, this story is brought to us by Jill Barche in the Heckinger Report. And in the 21 years since No Child Left Behind went into effect, the testing and data industries flourished, selling school districts interim assessments to track student progress throughout the year, along with flashy data dashboards that translated student achievement into nice colored circles and red warning flags. Now, policymakers and advocates said that teachers should study this data to understand how to help students who weren't doing well. In 2016, a survey by Harvard Center for Education Policy Research found that 94% of middle school math teachers said they had analyzed student performance on tests in the prior year, and 15% said they spent over 40 hours on this kind of data analysis. Researchers are asking nowadays another basic question. How has all that time that teachers have spent studying data helped students learn? Unfortunately, the emerging answer from one pocket of researchers, at least, is no. Quote, studying student data seems to not at all improve student outcomes in most of the evaluations I've seen, said Heather Hill, a professor at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. The market forces continue to push this on schools, even with very, very limited evidence of efficacy, unfortunately, end quote. Now, Hill reviewed 23 student outcomes from 10 different data programs used in schools and found that the majority showed no benefits for students. Only two were positive for students, and in one study, students were worse off. Another pair of researchers also reviewed studies on the use of data analysis in schools and reached essentially the same conclusion. Quote, research does not show that using interim assessments improves student learning, said Susan Brookhart, professor emerita at Duquesne University. The few studies of 
interim testing programs that do exist show no effects or occasional small effects, end quote. Why doesn't data analysis work? Well, all three researchers explain that while data is helpful in pinpointing student weaknesses, mistakes, and gaps, it doesn't tell teachers what to do about them. Most commonly, the article points out, teachers review or reteach the topic the way they did the first time, or they give a student a worksheet for more practice drills. Now, Manuel, uh, I have lots and lots of feelings about this. I can't wait to hear what you think about this. <laughs> what is cooking in that brain over there, Dr. Rustin? Let us know. Well, I'm having vivid recollections of my early years of teaching. And I want you to picture a, a Friday after school, after the final bell rang, all the, all the students are gone. And it's been a very long work week. It's been a taxing work week. And you've been juggling so much as a second year teacher. And you're just teacher tired before you even had the language for what teacher tired even was. And you're in line at the school's one Scantron scanner in line with some other teachers waiting for your turn to scan the Scantrons from the interim district assessment that you were forced to give by end of school day on Friday. And you know that if you don't get this scanned and sent to the district today before going home, you might face some kind of repercussions because next week you're supposed to be in a department discussing the results of this interim assessment that you gave. And it's an assessment that is very multiple choice, very bubble in and very much not aligned to what your students need. But you had to do it because that was the expectation and you're in line waiting for your opportunity and you finally get there and you, you scan your scantrons and all the data gets uploaded and you finally get to go home knowing in your heart that something's not right. And then the next week you arrive at your department meeting to discuss the data. And for each data point that came back way below expectations, teacher after teacher explains, yeah, well, we didn't get to that part yet. We didn't get to that yet. Yeah, we didn't get to that yet. And that's as deep and as far as the data analysis goes. And you know, you have spent so much time, so much energy and so many class periods wasted on this interim assessment that certainly costs a lot of money to the district while you are struggling to maintain your rent and your bills and all of that. And Jeff, fast forward, 18 years later, you hear this story <laughs> about how all this stuff is basically without much merit and without much value. After years and years of interim assessments, after years and years of, of speaking up at the faculty meetings and your department meetings saying that, these assessments don't line up with what we're doing or what we need to do. And everyone's saying, yeah, well, the district needs it. Yeah, this is on down from the district, wish we could do something. And here you are on your show, a super dope show with a super dope AOTA family, <laughs> thinking about all the time, all the money, all the energy lost on something that made somebody somewhere a whole lot of money. And that's somebody somewhere who made all this money. It's probably also on a conference speaker circuit or doing all kinds of other things, making more money than you, Mr. Classroom Teacher. So yeah, Jeff, mm. this is um, one of those mm. stories that just takes me back to the early years of my teaching. And also not, not I mean, not too long ago. I mean, I don't, I don't know what year was like the last of the interim quote unquote benchmark assessments that we had to give. But um, yeah, uh, many of my years were spent on this whole like, 
see where students are at on these measures and discuss it during your department meetings and identify ways to get them ready for the spring tests that are coming up. So much money spent, so many frustrated teachers, so much just like anguish over the fact that these were not lining up to what our students needed and what our students were were here for. And um, yeah, man, it's, it's very heartbreaking. I, I'm glad the research is finally becoming clear. I think the research has been clear for a while that just in general, our testing industrial complex wasn't um, producing the results that were promised. But I, yeah, I, I'm glad to see that researchers are now saying that even this data-driven instruction thing, which was like, you, you couldn't go anywhere in education for like a number of years and say data-driven instruction and like not be like, regarded as like, oh yeah, this person knows what they're talking about. Like that was the key phrase of like a, a smart, sophisticated educator or a school district where we, you know, we use data to do this and this and that. And now it's like, yeah, that, not so much, not so much for, for the reasons mentioned in the article, like very little discussion on why students weren't uh, achieving on this particular measure. Um, not enough discussion on like, the other methods that students could use to express what they've learned and what they know, um, but also just like, just the whole fraudulent nature of, of standardized testing um, with regards to like an actual building, an uplifting of um, a humanizing view of students and their role in their own education and their role in the world. So yeah, Jeff, this is a nostalgia right here. Not the good kind though, not the good kind of nostalgia, but yeah, what are your thoughts here? Yeah, so I'm going to disagree with like 75% of what you just said. Well, you're wrong. Uh, <laughs> you're wrong. Boo. So, wrong. Loser. Uh, <laughs> it's been a while since we've heard that. I just want to, you know, bring bring that back up for nostalgia's sake. Yeah. Um, okay, so here, here's the thing, Manuel. There's a layer of this that I do agree with. What I what I don't agree with is the is the place that I'm fairly certain like 90% of people's minds go to when they see the headline of this article. When they read the article, they're like, oh my God, all the assessments we're given are trash. All the time we spent looking at data was useless. We never should have done any of this. And this is just like the man oppressing us in schools. Boom, facts. Right? End of segment and right there. We're done. <laughs> Next up is the seminar. <laughs> I'm here to tell you that uh, that's simply just not the case. I would say like objectively and anybody who's worth their salt in education knows, knows in the fiber of their being and from lived experience that that is not the actual conclusion here. The layer of this that I would agree with and I would call us to really like dig into what actually are these researchers saying is uh, is that there are kind of two pieces of the equation that are problematic here. The first piece of the equation is what data are we looking at? Okay, what data is being elevated in this system, right? In the sort of no child left behind system and the legacy of no child left behind that was continued under Obama with race to the top and effectively continues today um, under Joe Biden and Trump with the Every Student Succeeds Act, which is this sort of like testing for the sake of testing pumping huge amounts of dollars into uh, the major publishing companies that produce most of the, or, or these you know consortiums like Smarter Balanced or Park or whatever that produce these massive, hugely expensive, huge infrastructure requiring, uh, you know, large chunks of instructional time taken away to administer these massive assessments, right? Um, and I think there is absolutely, not only some really tough questions to be asked about whether those summative assessments and the interims and practice tests that flow backwards from them are the 
the right uses of time and energy for, for teachers and educators at school sites. Um, and there is the question of how are we looking at the data? And I, I think what these researchers are really saying is the what and the how have been poor uh, at scale uh, across this country, Manuel. So I have, as someone who has been a part of lots and lots and lots of data-driven instruction work with schools in different districts across the country, uh, have seen far more examples of either just straight up ineffective practice um, at looking at data or the conversations get to a certain place and then they stop, right? They get to the place of like, okay, let's look at the data, let's make sense of the data. What did the data tell us, right? That goes well. But when it gets to what are we gonna do in response? What are our instructional moves gonna be to actually respond to what students are demonstrating as their need is where things kinda tend to fall off the rails. Sometimes that's because, frankly, there's just not enough capacity in the room with folks who have you know, a broad repertoire of instructional strategies to, to work from. Sometimes it's just about terrible facilitation of the meeting. Sometimes it's about a really toxic adult culture in the meeting where you got, you know, Mr. and Miss So-and-so who just shows up 20 minutes late, opens up their laptop and starts checking email and complaining and like derailing the conversation or some combination of those sorts of things, right? And so I think we have to actually understand and interrogate a little bit the results of this study to say like, this doesn't mean looking at data is bad. This doesn't mean trying to understand what our students know and can do and then using that information to inform tomorrow's instruction or our upcoming unit or intervention work that we need to do with kids who are struggling to read or struggling to you know, use certain problem solving strategies or whatever it may be, doesn't mean that that work is the wrong work. And to the extent that these authors actually mean that, I would wholesale disagree with them. Now, I don't know these scholars personally, I haven't read lots of their work, but I feel fairly confident in saying that's not what they are saying. They're saying the regime of DDI that we lived under was not impactful in the, in the ways on raising standardized test scores. And I think for many of us, that's A, not surprising, and B, confirms what we felt in, you know, in our gut or from our lived experience already. Um, so I, you know, you, um, many folks out there have probably read or heard about uh, the book Street Data from uh, Shane Safir and Jamila Dugan, right? Um, that I think is probably right now among the, the more popular texts out there that's kind of pushing folks to rethink and expand their definition of what is data that we're looking at and responding to in our school sites. So I think there, there are resources out there for folks that want to kind of reimagine what data are we looking at? And there is absolutely, Manuel, like I will go to my grave with this. There's still a role for looking in particular at student work, right? You give a writing task to your students or you have a, you know, a project that your students are doing or a quiz that your students take. Look at what they did. Understand what they are showing you about their thinking, about their knowledge, about their skill set. Uh, and saying, huh, what does this mean about how effective I was at teaching what I taught? And what does this mean I wanna do next in terms of helping 
uh, students continue to develop those skills, those dispositions, those uh, attributes of a learner in my discipline that are important to them being successful, um, not only immediately, but down the road in high school, in college, and in life, right? And so I think that to me, this, this article I chose because it, it screams like, let's throw the baby out with the bathwater, but I think we got to pump the brakes and say like, let's name more specifically what the problem is here and let's address that problem. Let's not go to back to the days when people refused to look at quote unquote data. We need to think about what data and how are we looking at it? How are we using our time effectively? How do we set up structures in schools that make quality DDI experiences the default and not the exception? To me, that's the major takeaway from this piece. I hear you, but that picture you painted about looking at student work samples and, and how your students did on the quiz and, and, and using that and, and analyzing that in terms of um, your, your instructional moves, that's not the picture that these interim assessments created for us. Uh, I think the, the type of data-driven instruction that is being talked about here, these are those like benchmark assessments that are aligned to the state testing that's coming out in the spring. And let's see where you are on the pacing guide. Let's see where you are with regards to that. And for any of that to have any kind of impact on your instruction, we need the actual capacity to do something about the results that we get from that. And what was mentioned here about like worksheets or just reteaching something like that's that's pretty much as far as it goes, simply because and I think you would agree with this part. Teachers just simply don't have the capacity, the the space and the freedom and the time to really dig deep on their instruction and their instruction moves and, and make adjustments mid year or in the middle of the year. It's just it's just not really there. I would want to see the capacity to be there first and then we could talk about these sorts of of standardized interim assessments and using that data to inform our instruction that next week or that quarter that semester we simply don't have the capacity for that we simply don't have the actual time the prep the the space and especially when there are deadlines the the assessments that i was talking about those those warm fuzzy memories of waiting for the scantron machine to be available <laughs> those were like lined up to a very strict pacing guide we had to get through history wise we had to get through the cold war by April, whatever, because that's when the state test was coming and there's gonna be Cold War questions on there, this, that, whatever. And there was no time, no space to really make adjustments that will be effective. So that's what I mean. Of course, of course, assessment, of course, data, when we have a, a broader sense or, or more um, humanizing sense of what data can look like, of course, that's, uh, that's the dream right there to be able to, to systematically and, and like with precision and with like true support among your staff to look at that and do something about that. That's the dream. But um, the comp the testing industrial complex that was built in that was weighing over me as an early teacher. That wasn't that type of data. And that wasn't that type of, of, of picture, at least in my experience. So I, I hear you. I don't think we're disagreeing much at all. I think the actual assessments that I had to give my students, if I brought those to you right now and said, this is what we did and this is what we're expected to do in two weeks for the next one, I think you would agree that that is all trash, that that is not something that's going to work. <laughs> and that's what I'm talking uh, about. The, the more thoughtful data-driven instruction, I think if we had the space and the capacity to do more of that and discuss that more, I think I would very much agree with you about that. I'm definitely not saying get rid of um, data in the just broad sense for sure, but Anyways, man, whatever, those assessments were trash, man. They were just trash, they were just trash. There was one time where we didn't even have scanners, so we had to put them in a Ziploc bag 
and send them to the district. And we had to do that before leaving work on Friday. And it was just like, just not pleasant memories, Jeff. Man, you, you, let me tell you something. There's a lot of trauma there, man. In, in California here, you you have no idea, man. You need to you need we need to get some New York City, New York State educators on here, where kids in high school take five regents exams in order to graduate. Where in you know grades three through eight, they have uh, you know a week, <laughs> right? Three days of math and ELA testing every year, science testing yeah. in fifth and eighth grade, okay? We, it's lightweight out here in California relative <laughs> to what it could be in other parts of the union. We have well, we tried boxes. to keep it down, man. We just had to so keep the tests in the, the safe, okay, back in the day. Like, it's a whole different ballgame, Manuel. But I this hear you. I hear is a topic you. for a much longer conversation. We should probably have an entire episode on this one, and maybe that's this, maybe this is good inspiration to do that. For sure, for sure. Yeah. All right, folks. That about does it for today's Do Now. A lot, of, a lot of juicy conversations there about teacher housing or teachers being able to even afford housing in their own school districts or near their own school districts. And um, those years and years and years of um, emphasis on data-driven instruction. Um, great conversations. Please, please, please remember to hit that thumbs up in those five stars if you can. And up next, we have a seminar session with a super dope guest who will be talking to us about pilot schools, pilot schools, especially in the Los Angeles area. Stay tuned. Hey folks, thanks so much for tuning in to All The Above. We really appreciate you. And as you know, All The Above is a small operation. It's just me and just Manuel, that's it. We have no sponsorships, which means we are totally dependent on our amazing audience to help support the show. So here's what you can do. Go to our website, which is aotashow.com slash support. That's aotashow.com slash support. There you can find links to everything you can do to support the show. You find all the links to every platform that we're on where you can like, subscribe, follow, make sure you share our show with your whole network. Also, you can donate there. We are on Venmo, we're on Cash App, and most importantly, you can find the link to our Anchor page where you can become a monthly patron. Even a small donation once a month will make a huge difference in helping us continue to produce the show. Lastly, you can find there the link to get your flyest, best, latest, all the above show merch, okay? All you gotta do is go to aotashow.com support. Thanks, enjoy the rest of the show. All right, folks, welcome to today's seminar. We are so excited to have you here with us today. And we have a wonderful guest who is joining us um, to talk about some really fascinating issues in education, specifically pertaining to ways in which school districts can think about supporting innovative approaches to how we do school. Um, so I want to welcome our guest. It is Dr. Cynthia Gonzalez from Los Angeles Unified School District. Welcome, Dr. Gonzalez. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, well, we are so glad you are here with us today. And folks, let me tell you a little bit more about Dr. Gonzalez. Um, she is the new director of pilot school support for the Los Angeles Unified School District. 
She is the former principal of the Communication and Technology School at the Diego Rivera Learning Complex, Go Cats, in South Los Angeles. She began her career in education as a social studies teacher in South Central LA and has previously served as principal for the School of Law and Government at Roosevelt High School in Boyle Heights, as well as a Title I coordinator. She has also chaired the LAUSD Pilot School Organization, supporting the work of LAUSD pilot schools serving high-needs communities. Dr. Gonzalez has been a candidate for the LAUSD Board of Education, as well as the Community College District, earning numerous high-profile endorsements, including the LA Times. She has a social studies teaching credential, two master's degrees in education, and a doctoral degree in educational leadership, all from a small school out on the west side that Manuel may or may not have even heard of called uh, apparently UCLA. Uh, and with that, I will hand it over to Dr. Rustin for our first question. Yeah, we got some UCLA brewing dopeness in the building. Dr. Cynthia Gonzalez, thank you so much for stopping by all of the above and, and making time for this conversation here about innovative approaches to to schooling. So you have a long history, as Jeff just went over, of working in some of Los Angeles's most underserved communities and um, recently as the principal of a pilot school. And we're wondering, for those who are listening or who are watching who aren't familiar with the concept of a pilot school, can you break that down for us? What are pilot schools and how are they similar or different to traditional public schools? Yeah, first of all, Cats Pride, Cats Pride and Go Bruins. Um, but yeah, we have currently 40 pilot schools in LAUSD. And what they stand for, I'm going to start with the values that uphold the pilot school model, which is uh, we believe in equity, collaboration, innovation um, amongst the staff at the school sites. Um, that's something that we really want to uphold in all of our schools. Um, they are founded on this concept of autonomy and teacher voice and teacher empowerment. And so they could be considered teacher-powered schools um, in which teachers play a larger role in shaping what is happening at the school site and principals create distributed leadership structures so that teachers and, and stakeholder voice, student voice, community voice, family voice take center stage in just creating schools that meet the needs of our students. Uh, most of our pilot schools were started by teachers. Who, uh, teachers came together to write their plans. Um, they hired their principals and they were intentionally started in low income communities around Los Angeles. So that's kind of like an overview of pilot schools. The, what makes us unique is that pilot schools also have an elect to work agreement in which teachers create a document that states their commitment to students and that upholds the vision and mission of the school that connects that that elect to work agreement to the overall school plan in which teachers outlined what their school is going to do and how it's going to meet the needs of students. And so every year teachers come together, they're in the process now. It's like a democratic process, not always pretty, but always inclusive of various stakeholder voice. And they come together, uh, sign that contract on a yearly basis. And they also evaluate the principal on a yearly basis, which is like the counterbalance of checks and balances. And I think it encourages a more democratic process at our schools. Um, and I've always, as a former principal at a pilot school, 
welcomed my teachers and students and parents evaluating my job as a principal and giving me feedback on what I can do to improve my practice. Um, I think it's something that a lot of schools can use and can model not just here at pilot schools within LUSD, but across the country. Mm. Yeah, um, Dr. Gonzalez, before we jump into the next question, I'm wondering if um, maybe you could give us, uh, if, if, if you can, off the top of your head, a little more detail about that elect to work agreement. Like, I can imagine a lot of educators might um, not necessarily have a frame of reference for what that could be or could even include. Do you, do you happen to have any examples of like what's in an elect to work agreement that maybe is different from the sort of traditional contract uh, that, that you know, all, most teachers operate by across the district? Yeah, I think the, our teachers are UTLA teachers are protected by the UTLA contract and there's still components of the UTLA contract that apply to them. The election to work agreement basically gives teachers an opportunity to add extensions of what they're committed to do at a school site. So for example, um, some schools have an hour of week of of volunteer tutoring for students um, that they're going to dedicate, or some schools have the implementation of an advisory program that they write into the contract to ensure that everyone who works at the school is implementing that practice or that strategy. And it's a way to try to ensure that every student who's at a school is receiving consistent access in every classroom space. Um, And really teachers make the changes every year because sometimes because we are innovative and we're trying things out and sometimes things fail, you put some stuff in there that, you know, maybe didn't work. Next year, you take it out. Someone, a teacher starts a project that is showing a lot of promise. And so now we want to make that a consistent practice across the school. So we include some of those things in there. They impact the teacher's working conditions in any way. The teachers will come together and ensure that those things are written into the contract. Um, And so our job as principals is to ensure that we use that contract to to ensure that everybody is doing their part at the school site, right? That everyone's carrying equal weight. So other things are that all teachers have to be a part of at least one committee. And so we all know in schools that it'll be like maybe the same five people taking a lot of work on. So when um, teachers include items like that, it makes it so that everyone is chipping in and everybody is contributing to the process. And the elect to work agreement, um, although we encourage it to be led by teachers, also should include students, parents, and the administrators, um, because the administration and the principal sees the larger vision and has a different vantage point um, than the teacher might have. So it really takes everybody collaborating and working together and and making the like to work agreement, like a valuable document for the school. Yeah. Great. Thanks. Thanks for uh, explaining that. I can imagine for a lot of people, um, you know, the idea that educators could come together and make those kind of decisions probably feels uh, maybe unfortunately very foreign to what, uh, to what folks experience. Um, our, our next question um, has to do, I think, with, you know, especially this kind of period of education that we have lived in the last, um, you know, three school years now being so heavily impacted by the pandemic. And there's been so much talk about, 
you know, the need to reimagine school, the need to use the, you know, the pandemic as an opportunity to kind of re-envision how things are done or not go back to just, you know, the kind of quote unquote, uh, back to normal or the way things used to be. Um, and yet, I, you know, I would argue that in many ways, apart from COVID safety protocols, we have largely gone back, gone back to normal um, in many places, at least in, in public education. So we'd love to get your take on, um, especially as a person who has worked intentionally in, uh, you know, a, an innovative school design model. Um, what do you see as kind of the, the top priorities or the places where we should be really uh, thinking about and working intentionally to reimagine or re-envision what, what school can be? Yeah, so I guess my thoughts on that would be that it is really difficult to get folks to innovate or be creative when they're really stressed and when they're working under maybe like fear conditions and and that's one of the things that we acknowledged when we met with principals that, you know, even trying to be risky and innovating during the pandemic, folks were scared to do that because they wanted to make sure that they didn't cause more harm or that they didn't take risks during this time. So I think that it was something that we that had open conversations about um, the fact that folks are feeling that way. But it also started really impacting people's passions because it was in that risk taking space that people felt more connected to their work. And so I think as we are still in this pandemic and working through it, that the best thing we can do is really lean in on the autonomy that our schools have, um, really empower teachers to be creative and to try to create space for them to foster their creativity. Um, I think that's what's going to connect educators who are like fleeing schools in mass numbers right now and principals too, like principal turnover is going to be crazy. Um, that right now they feel so out of control, like they have no control over their situation, that starting to give them a sense of autonomy and high levels of control can have them really start investing in their school spaces again um, and thinking creatively about what we can do in our schools. So, and I don't mean to say that that doesn't mean that we don't need support. And I think sometimes people mistake autonomy with not providing school support or holding schools accountable. I think there's a difference between um, telling schools or teachers and giving them an opportunity to make choices that they believe are the best choices for the students they're serving in that space. But it also means that they still might need support in working through various policies that or hindrances that barriers they might have. They still need the support of accountability and thinking and, you know, exposing them to other practices. So sometimes I feel like people might be fearful of the autonomy because they think of schools just wild, wild west, right? Doing whatever they want with no accountability, but just because schools want to leverage autonomy does not mean that they don't need support. And so I think right now doubling down on empowering schools to be creative, to have autonomy, um, to free up some of their time, to think creatively about their schools um, is like really crucial. Nice. And currently your, your role at LAUSD, you, you do a lot of that. You uh, oversee support for 40 public schools, uh, sorry, 40 pilot schools uh, within the nation's second largest public school district. And to a lot of folks who don't live around the Los Angeles area, that just might seem really 
like an oxymoron, like supporting schools that have levels of autonomy, but doing so within a major public school district. So we're wondering what um, you could share about what you think public school districts across the nation maybe should be doing to better support and help cultivate and nurture innovative approaches to school design and, and to teaching and learning. Well, I think at the core is the radical idea that people who are working in schools know students and community best um, and that we trust educators as professionals, right? We remove any suspicion that folks maybe are in those spaces for the wrong reason or that they're completely ineffectual or ineffective, that we believe that they're trained professionals, that they know their students best. And it's a shift in thinking. I think it's a shift in dynamics of power, um, of who knows what students need best. I think it's a shifting in leadership, right? So that you lead by supporting um, instead of telling people what to do, you become a supporting force. Um, and I'll give an example. Like I am really creative. I am super innovative, maybe too much and maybe to a fault because every time I would come to my staff, and I'd be like, hey, I want to talk. They're like, oh, no, what idea do you have now? You know, that was always like the joke in my school. Um, but oftentimes it was when teachers came together and made a commitment to each other in developing programs for students that like we were really successful. And my job then was not to say, hey, I'm the principal. The vision should come for me at the top. It was like, you know what, you guys came up with this amazing program. How much money do you need to keep it going? Like, how, how can I support you in making it work? Um, giving them all the credit for the work they're doing, making sure you compensate them for the work they're doing, um, sending them to training or conferences to, so they can elevate their practice. So I think it's more, it's possible for, and, then, and there's a lot of leaders um, in, throughout the country leading districts who believe this, which is, we support our schools. Um, I, some people call it servant leadership, right? Um, but you really identify what your school's passionate about and you work around the resources, making sure you remove the barriers and making sure that the, the teachers there know that you trust them, that you believe in their work um, and just really creating like very collaborative spaces. Yeah, uh, Dr. Gonzalez, I've done some work with schools um, in other districts around the country that are, um, you know, maybe weren't technically called pilot schools, but were sort of built in a similar model, right? Smaller mm -hmm. learning communities, uh, innovative kind of designs or themes or missions, that sort of thing. And one of the real challenges that I've seen that those schools grapple with is, you know, districts tend to be very good at, at like, establishing the way things are done and then making everybody do the do the thing in the right way right um, and uh, you know upholding sort of compliance with that across a large complex system um, and what I've seen other schools struggle with is being able to kind of um, insulate themselves from you know from sort of mandates that make them constantly feel like they're a round peg in a, in a square hole um, and I think one thing that's interesting about Los Angeles Unified is having a larger number of pilot schools and a person like yourself in, in your position and a, you know, a, a set of people who are um, there to help support, you know, maybe do some of the translating between the kind of um, 
larger policies of the district and the particular uniqueness of 40 different pilot schools. I wonder if you could share with us a little bit about like what is your what is involved in your work of kind of helping to support pilot schools in that context and, and maybe what lessons there might be for educators in other contexts who don't have the benefit of someone in your position kind of helping to make their jobs make sense in the, in the larger system. Yeah, I mean, I guess maybe understanding a bit of the history of pilot schools um, when we when they were first created. And, and under John Daisy, he created a local district in which all the pilot schools kind of sat under. And so they had their own directors that understood the pilot school autonomies. Um, we had a lot of, we had what we called the menu of services. So as schools, we weren't following one practice. We were each creating and innovating our own practices. And we could reach out to our local district and say, hey, we're working on mastery grading. Is there anyone in staff that can come provide training? And then the district would send us trainers for like whatever area. And every school might've been doing something completely different. Um, when that was disbanded, we went back to our local district areas by region. And so this is the first time in like six years that we have a position that's here to support pilot schools. And for me, the biggest thing is making sure that folks don't see pilot schools as a threat to any like established, I, I, I guess I want to say like any established or current practices that are taking place, right, that help local districts move their schools, but to see them as an opportunity and as a promise. And I think um, COSAs would benefit, like directors over all schools would benefit from working with pilot schools and allowing themselves to be innovative as well. Right. And, and allowing themselves to not say, hey, you have to use these strategies, but to say what strategies are working for your school and how can I support and innovate along with you? Um, I think that would also kind of make directors feel passionate about their work and supporting our schools. And I think the same for local superintendents and seeing our schools as an opportunity um, to see what teachers are capable of doing, right? The teachers within their district to see what families are able to do when they come together in unique and different ways and what students are able to do when they're provided those types, that type of access to education, that it can also serve as a model. Like I've been working right now on a report. It's not ready yet, but we are seeing a lot of really good data in terms of our, our schools outperforming um, LAUSD schools. And we serve a higher percentage of students in socioeconomically disadvantaged communities. And we serve a higher percentage of newcomer students. And so we were excited when we started seeing some of the outcomes. And we think it's only the tip of the iceberg, right? Um, we're doing this because of personalization and um, making sure we meet the needs of students. And once we really start leveraging and digging into our autonomies or on curriculum or on assessment, we think that that data will only get better. Now, I do want to say that I don't believe that there is any panacea uh, for some of our schools that live in extreme poverty. Um, I do want to I do believe that we have to radically be about ending poverty if we want successful schools um, across this country, that we can have different models that show success, um, but that to have consistent success, we really have to address the thriving communities around uh, our schools and where students live every day. All right. Now for our final question, some folks who are watching, especially those who are who are watching the video version of our show, they might recognize you as a 
a local candidate for office. You ran for school board as well as the community college board, and you were able to garner a lot of heavyweight support and in, in big time endorsements, including an endorsement from the Los Angeles Times. And it's not often that we see a sitting principal running for office. So we're wondering if you could talk about uh, a bit about why you thought it was important for you to run for office and why do you think it's important for educators to seek uh, space in some of these uh, political uh, political spaces and, and political arenas? Yeah, I mean, the reason why I ran was because of my colleagues. I saw how hard they were working um, with little to no recognition. I saw them getting sick, you know, on behalf of their schools, just like laboring every day. Like I was tired of teachers being considered ineffective in schools that were constantly ranked at the bottom, even though I knew they were working their hearts out in those communities. And to me, I just felt like something had to change in how we look at accountability, how we look at data, um, how we judge our schools, um, seeing that when a school is struggling, you take more autonomy away instead of trying to empower people at the school site to have autonomy and to be creative. It's like a punishment if you're not doing well. And typically those spaces were the spaces where you were serving more low-income students, where you're serving kids with high levels of trauma, where you're serving kids who are new to the country, where you're serving higher levels of students with special education needs. Like, And seeing all those things and I obviously I come from UCLA. We have a strong social justice uh, background. So I've been trained and I've been looking at school equity since before I even became a teacher while I was getting my teaching credential, doing research um, with like top educators and looking at schools in Los Angeles and the inequities in schools in Los Angeles and the assumption that it was schools high performing that what's happening in classrooms is highly effective. And I, I saw myself that that wasn't the case. I saw teachers at the middle school where I work trying their heart out. And then I've gone to other schools where teachers could hand kids a book and they're the top school in the district. And so to me, I ran because I felt like somebody who was doing the work needed to be in a space where we can actually speak to those challenges and where we can actually bring up these larger conversation pieces. And even in my role here as a director for pilot schools, I'm so passionate about pilot schools. When I first became a principal at Diego Rivera, I was like, I found my people. So many of them were from UCLA. They were social justice folks. They were speaking equity. And I was like, what? How did this happen to me? And I never wanted to leave. So being in this role, I feel is also an opportunity for me to support in a different way, for me to also challenge my, my role as a director and think outside the box and like how I can look at data differently. And I just had a conversation yesterday with someone where we we're talking about data and looking at the schools. And I'm like, I just want to do it differently. Um, I don't want to do it in the way that I know I, I have felt harmed by. I want to do it in a way that is going to empower schools and that more than anything is going to challenge us on the leadership end to look at structural changes that need to happen with some of the consistent challenges that our schools are facing. And one of the one of the areas that I researched when I was working on my dissertation was the concept of reciprocal accountability. 
And in some European countries, what schools do is that they outline what their needs are to their local districts, to their district environments. And the district says, okay, we will provide you those specific resources. um, And these are the metrics we want you to meet. And so schools will say, we can meet those metrics, but we need this in return. You know, I'm trying to figure out how I can model that in a small way with my 40 pilot schools and saying, where is it that you need support and what can I do to affect change so that you're able to do what, you know, you're tasked to do in serving students and communities. Mm. Wow. It's a fascinating uh, paradigm shift uh, that you were just describing there and one that um, personally I'm excited by and would love to see more of um, in terms of how we administer uh, this thing called public education in this country. Um, Dr. Gonzalez, before we let you go, I I did want to actually ask, I think one of the things that um, as someone who follows you on social media that I have found to be interesting about you is also that um, there aren't necessarily that many principals who are like making uh, well-received TikTok videos, uh, <laughs> for example. Um, so I just want to give you a moment to to maybe just share any insights into kind of how did you come into that? Like what what has been your philosophy around using social media to connect with your with your school community that you might offer to to others? Well, I will say this is the first time I put on like a suit. Because I always try to figure out, even in the way that I dressed, that I wanted students to feel that this was possible for them, you know? So the more connected I could be with students and how I dressed, how I behaved, that it's like, I'm just like you, I was you, and you can be this too if you want to, you know? And I think social media is just an extension of that way of thinking, right? to make students, it's so funny because my students interviewed me before I left and they're like, are you going to keep making TikToks? You know, because I walk into classrooms, they're like, miss, I follow you on TikTok. Um, But yeah, I mean, to me, it was more, one is on the creativity end. Like, I think it's fun to be creative. And so I like doing that just on my own. I have a thinking brain that's constantly musing on different things. I'm like, that'd be a good TikTok. So I'll just go and make it. Um, And then I have my education side and I feel like all educators, you know, we're not these weird, boring people like we have full normal lives and that it's okay to show that I think even in running for office, a lot of folks feel like you have to have this very cold cut appearance, you can't do this, you can't do that. And I feel like it removes us from, you know, connecting with other people who are like, hey, you know what, I identify with what you're doing. You're not giving me a stale version of who you really are, honestly, like you're being fully authentic. And so I think right now people want authentic voices that are out there um, that are going to be honest. That doesn't mean we're always perfect and that we don't say the wrong things or make mistakes, um, but that we're willing to kind of be open with who we are. So my TikToks have been for fun, my social media and Facebook, you know, I tell stories about my kids, about work, and make comments about education. And I really want to encourage people. I know there are board members who met with me who ran for office and won and who were like, hey, I saw you run and now I'm thinking I should do it. And I'm like, yeah, it was crazy. I was very naive um, when I did it. I didn't know 
the politics. I didn't know you needed a million dollars. I literally was going in there thinking, I am passionate about this. I know education. There's nobody that has my educational record. I'm a former student of this district, a parent of this district, and an employee of this district. Who better than me to speak to the needs of students and what needs to change? Um, And then I was very naive about that. Um, But I encourage everybody to run if you want a message to get out there, because even if you don't win, you can shift what candidates are talking about and you can shift um, the perspective of those who might win, you know? Um, And I think that's one thing that I did is I constantly spoke about equity to the point where I started hearing other candidates using my talking points. And I thought, there we go. Like if anything, I can get folks to really start discussing these issues Um, And then it gave me the opportunity to meet people in the media. So during the pandemic, I like helped push out stories on students who started to work. Like I would like let folks know like the issue of broadband, like we need to discuss what's happening with broadband issues and students. I'd contact senators and, you know, talk to them. And so I've been able to use that space to be able to do a lot of things actually um, behind the scenes to affect change that's impacted several thousand students in this district. So to me, having this role supporting 40 schools is just an extension of that work and being able to kind of um, ensure that more of our students have a quality education in our city. All right. Well, thank you, uh, Dr. Gonzalez, for for sharing just a bit of your wisdom and experience with us here on All the Above today. Uh, Folks, Dr. Cynthia Gonzalez, uh, Director of Pilot School Support with the Los Angeles Unified School District, has been our guest. Um, Thank you, Dr. Gonzalez, for, for joining us today. Thank you guys for having me. All right, that's it for today's seminar, folks. Next up is our Class Dismissed. Stay tuned. All right, folks, now it's time for Class Dismissed, where we like to give shout-outs to folks doing wonderful things in the world of education. Jeff, who do we have today for Class Dismissed? Well, Manuel, uh, today we are going to be giving some love to a really fascinating school here in Los Angeles. This is an LAUSD charter school, uh, the only charter school, uh, certainly in the region, perhaps across uh, an even larger uh, region, uh, expressly serving indigenous youth and actually bringing to the table curriculum that is uh, bringing indigenous teaching and learning into the classroom space in uh, in school. Um, so the school we're going to be shouting out today is Anawalkamekak. I hope I'm saying that correctly. Uh, International University Preparatory Academy uh, of North America, uh, which again is an LAUSD charter school. And they were recently shouted out uh, by a really cool piece in uh, Spectrum News 1 here in L.A. um, showing their science class where they're bringing indigenous science, particularly through the lens of addressing climate change and human-caused aspects of climate change. The school's principal um, and the piece was featured calling out uh, the fact that colonization is is part of what causes uh, climate change so that decolonization of the curriculum is going to be necessary in order to equip students with the knowledge they need about how to address 
the many issues we face uh, environmentally, scientifically, in terms of technology with regard to climate change. This is um, here in California, an A to G approved course, which means it is a course that's approved uh, to give students credit that they need to be eligible for the Cal State and University of California uh, college systems here in the state. So uh, really just want to give some love to the school and educators out there uh, bringing indigenous science into the classroom and helping to prepare um, indigenous youth and other youth um, who are hopefully going to be our next generation of leaders uh, to bring us the solutions um, that we need around climate change. So very exciting stuff. Props to you all doing great work. Yo, that is super dope. I, I was not familiar with that school. That is that's that sounds awesome. I have so many questions about the educators and the, the students there and, and what what they do on a day to day basis. That, that's really great. We'll put the link um, underneath this video or underneath this po podcast for those of you who are listening on the go. And shout out to those of you who are continuing to listen uh, this far into the episode. Shout out to you. Uh, we love y'all. AOTA family. Please remember, please remember how far a a review or a thumbs up or five stars goes. Um, if you haven't done any of that recently, we would love it if you take a moment to do that now. We very much appreciate you being supporters of the show and, and listening and tuning in. We'll see you next time, but do remember all of our stuff, the, the past episodes, links to all the stuff we've talked about, um, links to how to support us or how to get our Teach the Truth, teach the truth shirts or our AOTA swag, all that stuff can be found on our website, AOTA Show. Com. All right, folks, until next time, we love y'all. See y'all.